Oh, a life of adventure is gay and free, and danger has its charm. And no pig of spirit will bound his life by the fence of his master's farm. Yet there's no true pig but heaves a sigh at the pleasant thought of the old home sky. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Freddy Goes to a Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Willits. I'm Michael Lilienthal. I'm... I'm your also host, Ethan Bartlett. <laughs> Ethan Bartlett, as opposed to the other Bartlett. <laughs> yes. I didn't know Zeke was on this show. Ethan variety. Uh, <laughs> listen, this is my show. We're not talking about Zeke. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. Well, actually, I mean, we will be talking about Zeke later. Uh-huh. Zeke the rat. Yeah, yes. actually, I will be talking about my brother Zeke in that connection, oh, too, great. for that matter. So, Will you? Yeah. Almost certainly, mm-hmm. unless I forget. Very nice. All right. Well, as you all know, on this show, we read a book from the Freddy the Pig series, and we talk about it. What book were we reading for this week, gentlemen? Freddy the Detective. Do you like that little sing-songy rendition of it? Yes. Thank you. It was very good. So, Ethan, you said that you have a lot that you remember about this book. I do. Uh, are we ready for the nostalgia corner? Because today is going to be a doozy. Okay, well, glad that I'm in my bedroom and can just lie down. Go for <laughs> it. <laughs> yes, I know what you do when I talk. Don't don't play like I, I don't know. So... <laughs> Um, this is the reason this is such a doozy for me is this to me is actually the book that started it all Um, I was an unreformed heathen in that I started this series with the third book instead of the first Um, and came to it sort of incidentally I think Uh, because this was back when myself, my brother and all of our other homeschool friends who were very poor and spent a lot of the time at a lot of our time at the library just like um would just listen to books on tape incessantly and like one of us would find a book on tape that we that we uh, really liked and like then all everyone else had to also listen to it so we would get these kind of obsessions um and so, so for anyone born in this century, what a book on tape was is we had these things called audio cassettes, um, and people would read the text of books onto them. Uh, it's kind of like if Audible, if you took Audible and had to like change sides every half hour and also occasionally fix it with a pen. Um, yeah, if you took Audible and put it in like the Stone Age. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, I don't even remember. It might have been my brother, my younger brother Zeke, uh, or one of our other friends first uh, listened to this book, Freddy the Detective, that they had just found in the like children's books on tape section, uh, and then passed it around to all of our other friends and like. We were young enough that we still just sort of, like, played games, you know, just, like, pretend games, so 16 or 17 or whatever. Um, But uh, we, like, for a while, our pretend games became that we were animals, but who also could talk and also, like, were detectives. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so that was one of the first major influences of this book uh and yeah i just i i in particular like cotton onto this book and i swear i listened to the book on tape version like 30 times um i looked it up before we started recording the uh narrator was a man named john mcdonough mm. who if anyone can like track down his narration of this book it looks like it may be available for free online i'm not positive Ethan. Um, yes Ethan. i so in my haste to read this book because i always wait until the last minute to read this book of course um i actually decided to get an audiobook version okay. of it online and so that i could work while i listen to it right and sure enough it's that recording okay so and and I was wondering that I was wondering as I was finding the recording if I was going to come across the same recording that Ethan listened to when he was a little boy. Yeah. But yeah. That's awesome. Which means you've listened to his recording much more recently than I did cuz I like resisted revisiting it before re- reading it for this for the show. Mm-hmm. Um but I even as I as I read the uh Freddy the Detective um for our recording here a couple weeks ago, I, like, from having listened to it so many times, whatever, 15 to 20 years ago, there were still certain, like, lines that I could just hear in that man's voice. And as I remember, he had a wonderful reading voice, like, kind of a, a nice, like, baritone, like, like um, not exactly a Garrison Keillor voice, but kind of on that same spectrum. Very sonorous and lovely for a children's book. Yeah, yeah, had a little bit of that quality of, you know, just being, you know, a nice, soft-spoken, slow reading, but, you know, he made use of the voices, and it was fun to listen to. I didn't listen to all of it, it was mainly bits and pieces, and when I actually had a moment to sit down and read it myself, I did, but if I was, you know, in the midst of doing some of my work that I wanted to have it on the background, then I used it, and yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, it, and I like I say, uh, I, I could just I, I don't remember. Oh, that was my uh, dryer telling me it was done very loudly. Um, sorry, I don't remember like every like I, I I couldn't hear his voice the entire time I was reading this book, but there were just certain lines that I was like reading in in sort of my internal narrator's voice, and then it would just slide into the John McDonough delivery. Um, that just I still still recalled from 20 years ago. Um, so yeah, that was very good. Uh, that touched off kind of the obsession with, especially for My Brother Zeke and me, uh, with the Freddy books as a whole for a while. I certainly did not read all 27 of them or whatever, but uh, I definitely read uh, a lot of them uh, for a space of time. Um, and yeah, I did for a certain period when if I was mad at my brother I would call him Zeke the Rat and um <laughs> that would make him very angry like like more so than you know if I just called him like something made up like Zeke the Poopy Head or something I think <laughs> like Zeke the Rat since it was written down by an authoritative author that we both respected of like course. I think that had mm-hmm. a greater weight like I had done the research to insult him and <laughs> so that concomitantly like made him that exponentially angrier yeah. 
Uh, you have the shared acquaintance. You both know who he is and what he's done. Exactly. And you are making that direct contact and saying, you are this. Exactly. <laughs> Especially, and it was probably compounded by the fact that my brother Zeke did not see his name in print very often. Like, it's not a name that uh, fictional mm-hmm. characters, outside of, like, cowboy movies from before 1950, it's not a name that a lot of fictional characters have. <laughs> um... And so, like, it, it was it was even worse that way because it was like, like the one the one representation he did have for his name I was using against him. Uh, so that was extremely good. Um, I recalled this book being much more of a straightforward Sherlock Holmesy mystery at like from my younger perspective. Uh, it's still, and this might be getting in getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. It's still fairly episodic even though it has that climactic trial at the end but in my memory it was like it was just a book where walter brooks had uh you know taken sherlock holmes and dressed him up in a in a talking pig costume uh and i found it very inspiring that way um Mm -hmm. so those are like the main points that i remember sort of uh uh nostalgically this this book and uh uh, Mr. Uh, uh, McDonough's narration both sort of got me through a lot of uh, you know was, were were great companions I would say for for large parts of my childhood. Oh, okay, one other thing I have to say, and then I'll uh, mm. round out this nostalgia corner because I think if I let my start myself start talking and free associating, I could I could probably <laughs> fill an hour with extremely boring reminiscences, but. Um, one thing I would like to say is I realized on reading this volume, the third one in the series, that uh, there is a a novel that I worked on for several years that I sort of finished a couple years ago, and I've been slowly, more slowly than I should have, sort of shopping it for publishers with no success yet. But it's a it's a novel set in southern Wisconsin where I grew up, and the two like main female characters in it are named Alice and Emma. Um, And as I say, I finished working on this book two or three years ago, and I had not read Freddy the Detective since age 15, if not younger than that. Um, So, like, as a a reference to the two ducks in Freddy the Detective and and the other Freddy books, it was not in my mind at all. Um, I think I, I, I just named those characters that because I like the names Alice and Emma. And so I yeah. think like my conclusion, like it was just one of those moments I had halfway through this book, like, wait a second. And so my conclusion <laughs> is that from the Freddy books, you know, being these great companions of my childhood that I like, that just seeded deeply in me an affection for the names Alice and Emma. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, I just uh, kind of came up somewhere in in uh, the process of writing my own work as mm-hmm. as we have stated several times already in the first couple episodes freddie is always the egg yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yep it's true <laughs> he is the um, story yeah so that's again i I'm, I'm sure if i tried i could come up with more but i'm gonna say that's my uh nostalgia corner for this episode Well, Michael, what do you have for us as far as the history? 
I have a lot for us as far as the history. Uh, I, I I dug in and did my detective work uh, oh. on this. There's uh, there's a lot I think that uh, relates to this book as far as history. So I'm just going to kind of dive in here, and here we go. So Freddy the Detective is the first book in the whole series that's retained its original title for its entire publication history. Uh, we've got two and again, and more two and again. Uh, which was uh, Freddy Goes to Florida and Freddy Goes to the North Pole, but now Freddy the Detective has been Freddy the Detective its entire history. Um, It was originally published in 1932, which is two years after the previous book, More To and Again, or Freddy Goes to the North Pole. Um, Now, the second book in the series, Freddy Goes to the North Pole, was published in the first year of the Great Depression, but more than likely was written just before the Great Depression began. Uh, Freddy the Detective, though, was almost certainly written in the midst of the Great Depression. In fact, it's probably the only uh, of the Freddy books to have been written during the Depression. Uh, Freddy and Freginald, the next book, was published in 1936, three years after the Depression ended. Um, And I think that context is important to understand based on uh, a few other things that do happen in the book. Um, You've got, for example, the bank robber characters. The 1920s and 1930s were characterized by a surge of bank robberies in the U.S., uh, which led to the development of the FBI in the 1920s. Uh, As a tidbit uh, here, bank robbery was not considered a federal crime until 1934, which means that during this time and before 1934, bank robbers could escape into a bordering state and they wouldn't be pursued because it wasn't federal. Um, During the Depression in particular, there was a romanticization of bank robbers uh, because the banks had been collapsing, people were losing everything, so the banks were villainous, really, to a a lot of people who had lost so many things. So when banks were robbed, that was uh, seen as a heroic comeuppance against these banks. Now, interestingly, Freddy the Detective takes sort of the opposite perspective with the robber characters. Um, But maybe it's a little more nuanced. Um, We can talk about that more later. Anyway, um, prisons also have a connection uh, here as well, especially with the Great Depression. Um, I found a source that said that between 1925 and 1939, the rate of incarceration almost doubled in the US. Um, That's a central theme in the book, this prison uh, population and overpopulation, but um, Brooks takes uh, a more playful and possibly satirical view Uh, of that. Uh, Really interesting there. Okay, a few other uh, quick tidbits that I want to just insert in here. I'm kind of going rapid fire with all this. Um, So the phrase, eat crow, I had to look it up. The phrase, eat crow, has been traced to about 1850, (laughs) which is 80-ish years before Freddy the Detective. Um, There are a few songs mentioned in the book, uh, which are perhaps not so well known today. Uh, Sweet and Low is a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, and it was set to music in 1863. Bula Bula, probably a little more well known, is a football song of Yale University, and it was composed around 1900 by a few uh, alumni. Um, Annie Laurie is a poem uh, by William Douglas, and that was given music in 1834 or 1835. Uh, If you look, uh, if you've got a physical copy of the page, you can probably see it, but if you look right before the table of contents, you see this book is dedicated to Elsie. So I looked up who that is. Elsie was Walter R. Brooks's older sister. Uh, And he lived with Elsie while he was studying at the University of Rochester, and her husband was a professor uh, at the university um, in um, uh, pharmacology and and such, which he was studying at that time. 
Um, so this book was was dedicated to to her. That was the, this book was written years after that took place, but um, still, I mean, it's his older sister. So this one's to her. Uh, okay, now I haven't even mentioned the big historical note yet, and that's Sherlock Holmes. Um, the last writings in the series of Sherlock Holmes was uh, published in 1927. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle himself died in July of 1930, two years before uh, this book was published. Um, and we mentioned this in an earlier uh, recording, but uh, he'd done some of his own lecture tours, including several through North America. I, I trace some of the lines here. He passed through New York in 1922 when Brooks was living in New York. Uh, and so Brooks would almost certainly have at least heard of it, if not attended. Um, for this, uh, this lecture of, of Conan Doyle. Um, an added note about him is that uh, he did work outside of publishing exonerating wrongly convicted criminals, oh. uh, Conan Doyle uh, did. Uh, there are at least two documented cases where he worked to get men released from prison and overturn their convictions. Oh. Um, so, all right, I know all of that was a bit of a longer historical note here, but here's one more thing that I've got to put at the end. The president at this time was still Herbert Hoover until in this same year, Franklin Delano Roosevelt won against him and became the president. So, yeah, I thought that was really awesome. That was a great bit yeah. of stuff. Great. Yeah. Um, I just had one Beautiful. note to the historical note. Uh, you talk about 1936 yes. being after the Great Depression. Um, I know those lines are fuzzy. Yeah, well, so I, as I understand, economically the Great Depression ended in 1933. Like the the yeah. f financial phenomenon you call a depression ended in 33, but um, colloquially or like culturally, mm -hmm. people talk about the Great Depression as lasting potentially to the beginning of World War One, 1941. World War Two. <laughs> oh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Yes. That's what I meant. By, that's what I meant by World War One. Thank you. <laughs> um, All right. But which which is not to say that you're wrong. But if anyone's confused about that terminology, that's because it gets mm -hmm. used two different ways. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I I found the historical aspects really really cool, and I mean, um, just to give our listeners a little bit of connection. With those historical events, let's go into the plot of the book, shall we? Yeah. 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 So, um, I actually did write down a couple of notes. I, You had set me up with this expectation, Ethan, that this novel would be a little bit less convoluted than the other two. <laughs> and, and at first I thought that it would be, as I, as I was reading it and everything, because, I mean, you stay in one place, you're not right. traveling anywhere, and you... And it's all dealing with the same things. It's dealing with, you know, Freddy trying to make a name for himself as a detective, and you're dealing with the same issues and recurring plot points over and over again. And so I figured, oh, it's not going to be convoluted. I started writing my notes, and I was like, well, crap. 
So I'm going to walk through this and go a little bit by little bit. So the novel opens on Emma and Alice, who you were talking about earlier, Ethan. Right. Um, not your characters from the novel you wrote, but two ducks. Thank you for clarifying. Two ducks. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to clarify things like that. So you have Emma and Alice that ditch the duck pond because everybody is using the duck pond. And everybody that's not ducks, by the way, which really irritates them. And they come across Jinx and they're walking together through the woods and stuff. And they feel that they're being stalked by somebody. And they get scared half to death and find out that it was actually Freddy following them behind. Freddy says, it's okay, guys. I'm just learning to be a detective. And they're like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm learning to be a detective. And detectives follow people around. (laughs) And so that's totally fine. Um, they when Freddy explains to them what a detective is and that a detective tries to solve crimes and look for clues and things like that they bring to his attention this thing that's happened Everett, the adopted son of Mr. and Mr. Bean has lost his set of train cars and so Freddy and Jinx go together to the Bean's house because Freddy wants to investigate he wants to put his detective skills to use and so he investigates the room, finds a few clues that tell him that the trains were taken out of the room through the window, and they're pretty sure that it was rats that did it. And so they follow the tracks and everything, and it takes them to the barn. And sure enough, when they get to the barn, they find the rats. The leader of the rats is Simon. Simon has a couple of children and, you know, a couple of other relatives, and they're all together hiding out in the barn. Um, There's a good bit of history, and I love that paragraph of the history between Jinx Mm -hmm. and the rats about, you know, this this epic showdown between the two of them ending midnight truce, that they get together um, in the dead of night and... They agree that Jinx is going to leave them alone if they go to the woods and stay in the woods away from the house and the barn. They are now violating that truce. They are staying in the barn, and they are upset with the order of things and show a lot of disdain for it, and they are intent to upset that order of things that they are within right now. They want to be able to stay in the barn. They want Jinx to be gone, and they're going to do everything in their power to maintain that and to cause Jinx to, you know, get ousted. So, they, Freddy and Jinx figure, you know, we need to get the rats out of the barn, and that's Jinx's job, first of all. Jinx needs to make sure that that happens. When they are stalking the rats at night, trying to keep them from getting food or anything, they find that the rats have outfitted this train to be kind of this armored convoy that can go to the feeding trough undisturbed and jinx can try to get out that car at the cars and everything but the rats are inside the cars they're able to maneuver the cars get to the feeding trough get grain and get the train back to their hiding places and and so they're able to get the food they need they don't need to come out of their holes unprotected and that's not good for jinx at all if if um, Mr. Bean finds out that Jinx is unable to take care of the rats, then he's out of a job and he's going to get booted. And so they need to figure out how to get, how to take care of this rat situation. And Freddy is really seeking to build a name for himself as a detective. And this isn't great for Freddy either, because 
he got on the case to take care of these rats and he's not able to figure out a way to do to really do anything about it so he figures i'm gonna get my name or i'm gonna build my name as a detective by taking on some smaller things and sure enough one day a rabbit mother comes to him and says my son is missing my son egbert is gone and i need somebody to find him and so freddie takes the case he does some tracking into the woods and he follows these rabbit tracks all the way down to the this watercress that um, Egbert was supposedly at. He finds this little white bunny, and he interrogates this little white bunny <laughs> to figure out where Egbert is. <laughs> which, which is a wonderful so scene. Um, because, I mean, because, I mean, it's very obvious that this is Egbert he's talking to, and it just doesn't occur to him at all. And, and later on, when we get to one-liners, there are one or two one-liners from that scene that I'm good, definitely good. bringing up. But, in any case, um, Freddy is a little bit forceful in his interrogation of Egbert, and Egbert ends up running away pretty scared. Um, while Freddy is out and about, he comes upon this hermit, his this hermit's house, and there are these two guys sitting outside, one of them that's playing this game with swinging and trying to shoot the chimney with a gun, and he finds out based on their conversation that they are bank robbers. And... And so he's investigating that a little bit. Um, in the midst of one of the robbers swinging out of the swing, the swing breaks and he goes flying off into the same bush as Freddy. He finds this fat pig there and he's like, hey, let's get this pig. They chase Freddy off. Freddy, you know, loses them and gets back to the farm where Freddy is hailed as a hero by everybody. And he's like, what? <laughs> and the mom's like, you found Egbert! And, you know, Egbert's there and Freddy's like, Oh, that's Egbert. Okay, <laughs> and and but but it gains him a name for himself, and now people know that he is a detective that knows his stuff and can get the mm-hmm. job done. And so more animals start coming to him, wanting to either have family members found or wanting to get this thing or that thing solved and things like that. The next big case that he takes on is the case of Prinny's dinner. Prinny is a neighborhood dog, and Prinny's dinner keeps getting taken. The dinner gets put out on the front porch and keeps getting eaten when he's out and about. Um, and they can't figure out how it's happening because they like lay down flour on the on the porch in order to pick up footprints, and there are no footprints whatsoever. After laying low and hiding and tr- and leaving the food out as bait, they finally come upon the answer that it was Ferdinand and a couple of other crows that are coming and eating Prinny's dinner. Um, Freddy the pig confronts Ferdinand the crow and Ferdinand um, gives in after Freddy says, I have witnesses here to back me up here and Ferdinand's like, okay, fine. We won't do it again. Um, But Freddy gets questioned a little bit on the fact that there aren't really any consequences right now. And when he's asked about it, he's like, well, I mean, what are we supposed to do? I mean, how how can I, you know, have take care of the crows? They can just fly off and do whatever they want. And he comes to the conclusion that we need a jail. 
We need an actual jail to, you know, keep people that commit crimes, well, keep animals that commit crimes in. So he creates this, or he assembles this meeting of all the other animals, and all the other animals think that's a great idea, with very few exceptions, Jinx being one of them. Jinx, first of all, has been poo-pooing on Freddy as a detective for a while now, and is just like, whatever, I don't think you're anything special here. And also doesn't like the idea of a jail, doesn't think that we need it, and everything like that. But everybody else thinks it's a great idea, and if they're going to have a jail, they're going to need to have some sort of a justice system. They need a judge. And Charlie, the rooster, kind of sets himself up as a nomination and appoints himself. The only other candidate to run up against Charles is Peter the Bear. Peter the Bear is probably the more honorable choice that people would like, but the thing is, Peter hibernates during the winter. And so, it's like, if he's going to hibernate, how can we have him as judge? But other people are like, well, I would rather have a judge that, you know, hibernates that I can actually feel good about, instead of Charles, who I really question his ethics a little bit. So, um, the vote comes very close, but Charles ends up getting appointed as judge, Jinx isn't happy about it because Jinx doesn't like Charles and he ends up luring Charles outside and throwing, what is it that he throws at him? Um, Tomato. Uh, Yeah. Tomatoes, that's right. Yeah, he ends up, you know, pelting him with some tomatoes and stuff and everybody (laughs) finds it funny that Charles, you you has a... (laughs) There it is. Yep. Yeah. And so he... And so that incident occurs, which plays into Charles's view of Jinx later on. Anyhow, this jail is put in place, and now people can be sent to jail if they are caught doing a crime or are caught, um, caught having done something that they weren't supposed to be doing. Freddy gets these new recruits to work for him. He's kind of forming this sort of detective agency, and he's training in these animals to tail people and to follow behind. Mrs. Wiggins is one of these recruits, and she sucks at tailing people because she's a cow, and she can't sneak up on anybody. And Freddie, in talking with her, realizes that while she's not talented in this area, she actually does have a good brain for ideas, or rather common sense is what they is what she ends up calling it, just common sense. And so with her... With her Brains, she is able to talk through and figure out a scheme with Freddy to get the trains or to get the train cars away from the rats. And they pull off the scheme and it actually works. They get the train from the rats and now the rats are unable to come out of their holes unprotected to get food. They supposedly have a big store of it that is going to keep them for a while anyway. And so the problem of the rats hasn't gone away. However, their power has certainly been diminished now that they don't have the train. And also they took, is it Zeke that they have? Zeke or Ezra? One of the two yeah. rats they take as I think as it's prisoner. Ezra. Um, yeah, I think so. Because Zeke mm-hmm. is at the trial later, I think. But yeah, they take Ezra as prisoner. And so, I mean, that's another victory for Freddy. And after this victory, Freddy decides, okay, it's time for us to set up an official agency. Frederick and Wiggins... Um, as a detective agency is set up and they start solving more and more cases and they realize that there's a big crime wave happening that more and more animals are committing <laughs> crimes and upon questioning one of them they realize 
oh, the reason why people are committing crimes a lot more is because they want to go to jail. Because jail is a fun place. People are able to stay up all night in jail. You get food given to you for free in jail. And you get to just hang out and have a good time. It's, it's you know, pretty pleasant. When, when this happens with one rabbit that very obviously commits a crime right in front of Freddy and Mrs. Wiggins, he, like, goes up and eats lettuce right in front of them, making sure that they can see him. They're like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I committed a crime. you got to take me to jail now. <laughs> and they're like, well, we'll take you to the judge and we'll we'll have a trial for you and everything. When they go to take him to Charles for this trial, then they find that Charles is actually gone. He's missing. Mm-hmm. And when they look for him, they find him in jail. They're like, Charles, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm in jail. There was a crime or something that I committed several years ago, and I need to be in jail. And, you know, he's just having a good old time about it and everything. And Let eventually, joy be unconfounded. Telling... Or unconfined. Yes, yes, we'll be... I'll, I will be reading a bit of that Great. later. Um, but, um... So, there... They have this, you know, dilemma that he wants to stay in jail, but obviously he needs to still be the judge. And so they say, well, I mean, if you're going to be in jail, then I guess Peter can be the judge, which Charles is definitely not okay with. In fact, they threaten him with that a couple of times when Charles wants to shirk on his Mm -hmm, judge mm -hmm. responsibilities. And as soon as they bring up Peter, then he's like, no, I'm the judge. And (laughs) that's how they get him to carry out his actual duties and everything. So... Freddy is trying to figure out the rap problem, and he's also trying to figure out this deal with the robbers. Right around this time that he sets up the agency, two human detectives come to the agency, a city cop as well, or a city detective as well as the local sheriff. And the local sheriff shares with the city detective, this these animals are really different animals, and they're super smart, and... I would trust this pig to actually help us out. And the city detective, of course, is unconvinced. But Freddy takes the job and indicates to them through nods and various other forms of communication, because animals can't talk to other people unless they're Santa Claus. And then, <laughs> and so Freddy, Freddy says that, yeah, he would take the case and... But he's not going to just give up the prisoners to them. He wants the he wants the glory. He wants the fame, and he wants his due for being able to bring these criminals in. And so um, he sets up this plan. He's going to disguise himself as a tramp and go to the house and try to enact this plan of his. While he's getting <laughs> dressed up for his disguise, he runs into Jinx, and Jinx um, informs him that he's being framed for this crime for killing a crow in the barn. And Freddy, of course, knows that Jinx wouldn't do that. And when he goes to talk to Charles as well as um, looks at the scene of the crime in the barn, the rats are all very much convinced. They say, we saw him do it. We saw him kill this crow. And Charles, because Charles carries a chip on his shoulder due to the tomato incident, (laughs) he wants to see Jinx in prison as well and since he's the judge he has the power to do that and freddie is able to convince them look i'm pretty sure it's not jinx he needs to have a trial 
he's not going into prison until he is able to have that tr- this trial in a couple of days. And everybody's like, okay, fine. <laughs> Freddy goes to enact his plan to bring the, the robbers to justice. He goes to the house. They take him as a tramp and don't think that he's a pig at all. And they, they say, wait, he's a dwarf. He can definitely fit into the window of that bank in town. Which reminded me of that one Hey Arnold episode, if you ever watched the show Hey Arnold, where where they realized that since he has a football head, he can definitely fit into the window of that one store. Yeah. But in any case, they take they take Freddy on this crime, which Freddy was not planning on and he's not happy about. And Freddy kind of muffs up the whole plot anyway. They take him back to the house and they're like, you, you should just leave. You're not even any help at all. <laughs> And Freddy digs into his pocket and takes out this sheet of paper that shows the robbers a schematic of Mr. Bean's mm-hmm. barn. And they are led to believe that there's a fortune in the barn, and they go off to get that fortune. They leave Freddy behind tied to the chair. However, they have a mouse that is serving as a mole in their house. Did you like nice. that? Yeah, um, very good. And, and, and the mouse comes and bites the ropes loose so that Freddy's able to get back to the barn in time. They are able to catch the robbers and Freddy receives the $5,000 reward for that capture and fame spreads even more for him as far as being a detective that is able to solve any crime. Mm-hmm. And um, so you have that plot resolved. And then we come to the trial. The trial takes place and throughout the case Throughout the process of the court case, um, you have the accusation that Jinx definitely killed this crow, which the rats are all standing behind. Freddy is able to, little bit by little bit, poke holes into their arguments, and he's also able to bring a number of witnesses that fill out the plot of the rats, which was to make it look like that Jinx killed a crow. No crow was actually killed. They were able to manufacture, uh, you know deceased crow crime scene by getting um, some chicken feet from a chicken that was consumed at a local house, as well as by gathering feathers and dyeing them black, as well as, you know, dyeing the chicken feet black. Um, The rats are incriminated and Jinx is let free, and the rats, when told that jail is not going to be a fun time and that they are actually going to have to do manual labor and everything, they skedaddle and retreat before they're able to be taken into custody. Jinx realizes that Mr. Bean has gone to the barn to put back in the boards that were loosed up by the robbers that were looking for the treasure, and Mr. Bean has sealed off the rat holes, and realizing that there were rat holes there but no rats, he says, well, Jinx is definitely doing his job, and Jinx deserves, you know, a nice saucer of cream every now and again. So Jinx has a good, happy ending with his job still in place and with good relationship with Mr. Bean. Um, and the book, of course, ends with Freddy being like, I'm just tired from all the work I've been doing. I want to go on an adventure. And so he and Jinx decide we're off on an adventure, and they head out. And that's the book. And we lit out for the territory. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> all right, so. Where the widow um, couldn't try to reform I'm, us. I'm going to. I'm going to open up the floor to you guys because I've been talking forever now. Um, what were some of your favorite parts of the book? I have one single thing that I have been itching to uh, say, so I'll 
start with that if that's okay. Um, yep. The rats as an mm-hmm. antagonist, I think, are so good. Um, and in in these first three books, they're the first. I'm tempted to say like real mm-hmm. antagonist that that uh, Freddy has encountered, because like you have you have sort of pretend antagonists uh, along both the road to Florida and the road to the North mm-hmm. Pole between the alligators and the various robbers that come up. The and, wolves. Uh, the, the wolves. The, ha- and, the handlebar yep, mustache the guy. Yeah, and the, the captors of these two children. Yeah. Um, but they're all, they're structurally speaking, they're they're more just like pins that are set up to knock down mm-hmm. right away. The, the rats are the first like classical yeah. style antagonist where uh, they they start antagonizing near the beginning and they don't get fully defeated till the end. Um, they drive the plot in a sense. And yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. And they they make it, you know. I know I know Josiah had some uh, uh, issues with this description, but I think they help make it the most coherent plot out of the three so far. In the sense that yeah, and I'm and I mean it's the it is still purely episodic, and I mean. It is the most coherent plot. Yeah. Um, it's just that there is a lot that happens, and it yeah. manages to, you know, have plenty happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, um, but the one thing that, like, I I love about the rats that I probably probably am more aware of now than I was, whatever, 15, 20 years ago, um, is just some of their, like, antecedents in fiction. Um, because to me, these rats are... Oh man, I should have looked this reference up. Uh, have any of you guys seen any of like the film versions of the shootout at the OK Corral? I've seen the Star Trek um, adaptation of it. <laughs> well, yeah, and I've seen that too. Um, so there was one, and here I am just uh, um, filling the dead air. Filling the dead air as I v- very quickly do the the prep I should have done. Um, to me, the two most probably most uh, um, famous, if not the best ones, uh, there was a film in 1946 with Henry Fonda. <clears throat> excuse me, called My Darling Clementine, um, and uh, there was another in in. Um, 93 the film Tombstone came out 94 the uh, film Wyatt Earp, Earp came out oh yeah I've, <sighs> I've seen uh, I've seen Tombstone sure with with, uh, with Val Kilmer yeah and Kurt, Kurt Russell again <laughs> yeah. it is it is especially uh, what I'd call not a good movie but um, yeah very popular yeah, in fact I, for a while I saw that I saw that for the first time a couple months ago huh. actually I oh, was at okay. somebody's house and he's like you haven't seen this and I was like no and we watched it and he was like isn't it good and I was like yeah <laughs> I guess <laughs> good <laughs> yeah um, okay so now of course my darling Clementine has been being 1946. Uh, is still 13 years after, 14 years after uh, this book is published. Um, however, the Wikipedia page that I opened up quickly while stalling here uh, does have a note. There's a movie called Law and Order that came out in 1932 with Walter Houston, um, who was a big, you know, big name actor at the time. 
which this article says is the first film to depict the gunfight. I'm not sure that's true because I'm fairly sure that there are some silent mm. film versions of it, but I, I, I mean, I've done this much research as we've been talking, so I obviously haven't done the legwork okay. to back that assertion up. Um, so I could be wrong about that. But anyway, obviously, Law and Order would be the same year uh, that this novel is is published. And um, even so, like, the, the shootout at the OK Corral is one of those events that became fictionalized and mythologized almost immediately. Hmm. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, within a year or two of the event, you have what we would now call dime novels, you know, popular... Hmm popular cheap pulpy novels uh depicting the fight in wildly inaccurate details um but Mm -hmm. one of the the characters or the sets of characters that come up uh in sort of the mythology of course very briefly the mythology of the okay corral is that um there's this family of outlaws and and uh redneck hillbillies called the clantons that are terrorizing this town and wyatt earp comes in as sort of the reluctant sheriff and uh uh has to face the clantons mm-hmm. down and and you know rid the town of of them and uh scour the place of evil and make way for civilization and all of that good stuff um so in this mythology then the clantons are this family that of a. Uh, of a hillbilly outlaws that that are the source of evil and terror in this town and i strongly suspect that the um the rats are based on either the clantons or other similar like tropes in you know western novels western uh, Mm -hmm. stories um just because you get it's it's the same dynamic like in in my darling clementine you know there's like an old grizzled like father figure and then two sons and like the father figure is the brains and he's always like verbally abusing the sons and Mm -hmm. um you know the sons Mm -hmm. are dumb but the father like Mm -hmm. i mean i think in my darling clementine he's like given a whip and he literally whips his sons into like doing Mm -hmm. his bidding and stuff um so i think the the rats are are uh maybe based on a similar trope um again i haven't done the research to know if it would be this one specifically or if this is just a a, one example of of a common trope but um i especially suspect that because they're given like names like zeke Mm. and ezra and all of these like you know hillbilly cowboy names um So I, I strongly okay. suspect that that's Walter R. Brooks just, like, using some mythology that, like, especially, you know, boys in his target audience would have would yeah. have uh, been likely to be familiar with and, and okay. be in their sort of, like, cultural vocabulary right. and just mm-hmm. using that and kind of satirizing it or at least having fun with it in his, mm-hmm. in his farmyard terms. The... The whole, the whole image of it, I mean, this family of rats and their extreme disdain for the order of things and the authority that is in place on this farm. Freddy's like, we expect you to give it back. Uh, every animal on the farm will be sore at you if you don't. They're all very fond of Everett. Oh, sure, they're all fond of Everett, interrupted Zeke angrily. He pets them and feeds them, but what, but what has he ever done for us? And what has Mr. Bean ever done for us? Set traps and mix poison? 
That's what he's done for us, driven us out of our comfortable homes. And you think we should be nice and kind, do things for him and say pretty please just because he's a man and owns his farm? Well, we're sick of men. Men are all alike, selfish, know-it-alls. And if you don't do as they say, out you go. But you just wait, you and the rest of the stuck-up animals on this farm that think you're so smart. We've got a few tricks up our sleeves yet. You wait till you see that train of cars the next time. You'll laugh out the other side of your mouths. Just you wait. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it's just it, like, It sounds wow, like these, great. this manifesto could okay. have come from the mm. mouths of, you know, the proletariat during the Depression. Um, right. That... Uh, I, yes. I, I think that's like a very yes. direct connection here that Walter R. Brooks is making and probably seeing some of what's going on in the Depression. And as he's writing kids' books, he's probably thinking about the morality of these kids and how they're going to be affected by this and how easy it would be to slip into that life of crime, you know, um, that the are the rats and the bank robbers, you know, which, again, in popular culture at the time, the bank robbers were romanticized. Uh, but in this book... They're not. They're clearly the villains. Um, I feel like he's kind of trying to create a, a, a moderate sort of stance uh, on things there to, to acknowledge that, no, those things are not right. But also, by letting that manifesto be put here, it becomes less preachy than it could have been. Because Zeke gets this yeah. speech, it's giving mm -hmm. sympathy to that side a little bit. That this is unjust. Right. The way he's trying to fix mm -hmm. it is wrong, but the treatment that the rats are receiving is unjust. And so it's trying to create a more nuanced, uh, more well-rounded view for these kids, I think, in the environment in which they're living. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, and especially, there. like, a speech um, like that would have been in the mouth of a lot of, like... It's interesting you use the word proletariat because there were a mm -hmm. lot of what amount to like communist uh, street oh, creatures sure. or other other uh, you know communist recruiters at the time mm -hmm. uh, um, you know this was this was well before all of the red scare stuff so like mm -hmm. communism was was uh, suspicious but not as like insidious uh, it wasn't as yeah as insidious or even terrifying as it would be yeah, sort of yeah. towards the middle of the century um but yeah, it is interesting because he Brooks seems to, like you said, Michael, be taking a, a sympathetic look at someone who is still doing a mm -hmm. wrong thing, which is a very like complicated, oh, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, nuanced view for a kid's mm -hmm. book. <laughs> so can we talk about the robbers for a moment here? Yes, please. I, I loved the robbers, man. <laughs> and <laughs> the thing... The thing that Walter R. Brooks does so well is that even when you have people that are even like the knockoff villains, which I would definitely re regard these robbers, you were talking about how the rats are like real antagonists. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with that assessment and that the robbers are more knockoff villains and everything. But um, just the fact that, I mean, if it weren't for the fact that they were bank robbers, then they would be, you know, pretty chill guys. And, and I mean, and I mean, you meet, you meet the, 
you meet the one and the one is like really concerned about the other guy not wearing his rubbers and that he's going to catch a cold if he doesn't wear his rubbers right. and 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 when you come upon them again freddy comes to their cottage and they're having this contest to see who can either play the harmonica or sing fastest yes. and, <laughs> they're playing together but they're trying to play fast yeah and the description of that is amazing where where was that um, yeah, that it's when he comes upon them later. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even during his first contact with them, they're playing that game to see who can hit the chimney by shooting at it and everything. And I mean, they they like playing games. They mm-hmm. like having fun. And yeah, yeah. I mean, until they it's, throw Freddy under the bus. I mean, you, yeah. you you could see yourself getting along with these guys, but then they betray Freddy, yeah. and it's like, ah, no, nope, you gotta go. Okay, I will. Yeah. I do have to point out that in the very first scene with them, the one like threatens the other one with a gun if he doesn't. I don't remember what it is. Push him on the swing or something. Oh, that's. But other than that, I agree. <laughs> other than the threat well, of violence with a gun, they're other fine. Other than that, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's see. Where is that? The the description of them, you know, playing their game. It's um, right at the beginning oh, of Freddy Becomes yeah, a Burglar Yeah, chapter. here we go. Here we go. Freddy thought, okay, so, yeah. Um, By he this could time, hear music, it was however. dark. Someone was the windows in the Hermit's house were lighted up. Yeah. 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 And a man's voice yeah. was singing. The song was sweet and low, but both singer and accompanist were going as fast as they could, and they were never together for more than one note. The singer would be ahead for a time, then the player would put on a burst of speed and pass him, only to get behind again when he stopped to, to take breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, and I mean, when you come in on that, you don't even know that they're playing a game at this point. You just think that they have bad timing. They're just and bad. Then when, and then when you read the the next paragraph, Freddy thought this was the funniest singing he had ever heard, and then you get down at the bottom. It says, "You won this time, Louie, He said, saying, "But it's the court, but it's the chords in that second part that slow me up." I'll race you on Bula Bula, said Louie. And, and I mean, it just keeps going. And yeah, That's yeah. Fantastic. That's, and then. It's interesting. That's like a really sophisticated way to like roll that information out too. Is like a lot of a lot of books aimed at you know sort of children that, that roughly this age would front load that information a lot more to make clear what the joke was. But uh, Brooks mm-hmm. just kind of lets you figure it out mm-hmm. as you go. He lets the mm-hmm. reader be the detective. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, and I mean, these are the same guys that a couple pages later when they're going to go out to the bank with Freddy, then they explain to him, we don't carry loaded pistols when we're at work, he explained. It's too easy to have an accident. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, they've got these, they've got these... <laughs> They've got the pistols, but they're just for fun, not actually for the, <laughs> <laughs> their work. Yeah, uh, they're, they're more props than anything else. It's just like, you know, the robbers in the first book that carry lanterns because yeah. that's what robbers that's carry. That's what robbers do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, like, you see them shooting the pistols. They're doing that in the very yeah. first scene you meet them. But they're practicing, and so you get the idea, all right, they're practicing for when they need them. But no, they're just having fun. They're just, mm-hmm. they're just shooting the guns. <laughs> Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 
It's wonderful. Mm. And okay, so with with Freddy's interaction with them too, and oh. when he's in disguise and everything, the way that's written out too is really good because, um, I mean, he he you know just shakes his head, and they're like, oh, he must be mute. Um, and they you know they come up with their own conclusions to these things, but they're exactly the conclusions that Freddy wants them to have. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So we talked about the robbers. We talked about the rats. Man, the okay, the whole jail thing. The jail thing. <laughs> the jail thing. Uh. And and well, well, and Charles. That scene with Charles at the jail. <laughs> Man. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm gonna go back to that just so you know. Because, you know, usually when it's the one-liners, I just highlight, like, one line of the whole thing. But the the scene at the jail was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is... You've got this whole the... party going on. Um, mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a dance. Um... Yeah, here it is. Here it is. Okay, <clears throat> so Freddy pushed his way through them and confronted Charles, who... Um, you know, they walk into the jail and they they hear this voice go, "On with the dance!" declare or declaim Charles, and <laughs> Freddie's like, "Stop!" And Charles, you know, continues with, "Let joy be unconfined." <laughs> and, and, and then, and then Freddie Freddie pushes his way through them and confronts Charles and says, "What on earth does this mean?" He demanded. "What are you doing here? Don't you know that Henrietta is half crazy with worry?" Why I. I'm in jail, explained Charles, a little hesitantly, then gaining courage at the immediate applause which the or with this Im- remark drew from his fellow prisoners. Tell Henrietta I'm very sorry, he's, he went on, but I'm serving a six-week sentence, and I can't come home until my time's up. <laughs> a sentence, exclaimed Mrs. Wiggins, but how can you be serving a sentence? You're the judge. How, who can sentence you? A judge, or the judge, said Charles triumphantly. I'm the judge, and I sentenced myself. (laughs) For what? Well, I'll tell you, said Charles, now thoroughly at ease. You see, two or three years ago, I stole something. It doesn't matter what it was. Well, then, when I was elected judge, that old crime worried me. Here I am, I thought, sentencing other animals to jail for crimes no worse than the one I committed, and yet I never served any sentence for it. It got on my nerves after a while. It didn't seem right somehow. What right had I to set myself up as better than these other animals and punish them for things when I has was no better myself? The only fair thing it seemed to me, the only just thing, the only honest thing, the only noble thing was to punish myself. And so I did. I'm serving my sentence now. And it's like the Charles's whole thing with oratory and being able to like put together a speech and something really comes forth here with you know mm. his whole defense of his actions. And it's just a comical situation. Mm-hmm. The, by the by the way, do you guys know where the sentence "Let joy be unconfined" originally comes from? No. Uh, what? Lord Byron. Child Herald's Pilgrimage. Of course it does. Yeah. Of course it that does. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. On with the dance, let joy be unconfined. No sleep till morn when youth and pleasure meet to chase the glowing hours with flying feet. I thought wow. I had, I thought it was familiar, and I so I had to look it up, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. 
Byron Byron really had some great inspiration on these pages. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he took a lot from uh, Freddy the Detective. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. So. So the trial. Can we talk about yes. the trial? Let's discuss that. Yeah, so I want somebody else to start this off. Go uh, for it. Well, I mean, you get this this uh when I when I did the research into Conan Doyle a little bit it it uh you know made me realize I mean the the book isn't just about Freddy being a detective. He does a lot of stuff in here. Um you know, he he guides the organization of the court system and the jail. He becomes a a lawyer <laughs> as well here. Um, which then, you know, that's what Conan Doyle did too, not necessarily as a lawyer, but he did the research to uh, get people's convictions overturned and such, um, which is similar here. So Freddie's wearing multiple hats, um, but the, the whole setup, the, the trial itself is essentially the, the whole, um, the, the point at which the detective discloses his conclusions and everything. It's just a trial happens to be the, the perfect climax in this book. But it's exactly what you would see in, you know, Sherlock Holmes, where, you know, he's putting the clues together and he's like, oh, I see. And, you know, he's realized something that the other characters and the reader hasn't yet. And so the characters ask, oh, what's that? And he's like, well, it'll, I'll, I'll bring it to light later. I've got a few more things to work out and then I'll tell you. And, you know, Freddie does that through this. And that, that's, of course, after he's bungled things up a little bit with the mystery of Egbert and then like, oh, that went well, I guess. So, all right, here we go. Um, and then he proves to be an actually good detective and comes out with this perfect airtight case and, and summary of everything that, uh, um, it, it, and it works exactly like a, like a Sherlock Holmes book um, for him to say, here's these clues, these clues, these clues that, um, yeah, that doesn't work out, but this does. And so here's the conviction. And even with that like extra twist at the end of actually getting the rats uh, convicted that that um, trap that he lays. Well, okay, you're safe as long as you don't commit another crime uh, before mm-hmm. the end of the trial, and then you know catches mm-hmm. them because he knows. Well, and if the, if they're going to to testify, they're going to lie, and that's perjury. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what what I loved so much about the trial scene is that it would have been very very easy for Brooks to say, well. They're animals trying to play at humans, and so this whole trial scene is just going to be complete farce. Right. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. but what he does is he actually has them treating it seriously. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great speeches and a lot of areas here where the animals are holding true to their parts of, like, you know, Ferdinand being, you know, the best that he can be at being a, you know, a lawyer trying to convict Jinx. And um, Freddy, you know, being a good professional defendant or, or defender, and um, even some of the things that Charles is saying and everything like that. But every now and again, you get these little peaks of like the the personalities of the people that come out. Like for instance, um, at one point, then when it's when Freddy is trying to. Um, establish if Zeke was out um, at um, Miss, Mc- Miss McKinnicle's house um, when he traps Zeke mm-hmm. in his words and everything and is trying to really firmly establish that which he you know lays into Zeke a little bit um, 
Let's see. Um, Ferdinand objects. He says, stop, stop. I object, Your Honor. I object on two counts. First, Zeke's whereabouts on the day before the mur- I, I should say the alleged crime have nothing to do with this case. Second, Freddy is trying to in or is trying to intimidate this witness. And Charles says, objections not sustained. Even if this rat's whereabouts have nothing to do with the case, I guess everybody here wants to know what he was doing at Miss McNichols' house mm-hmm. or was at Miss McNichols, which is fine. But then the second and but then he says, and second, if anything can be done by Freddy or any other animal to intimidate him. I want to see it done. Proceed, Freddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like, whoa, what? It's like he, he lands hard into his role as judge and is like, nope, we're going to we're going to take this seriously. But 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 and then just the if he's going to intimidate somebody, I want to see it. I want to see it. <laughs> yes. Um, um, also, you have another another little, you know, window into the fact that yes animals die and we don't mm-hmm. like it when freddie is questioning Prinny about miss mcnichol and what she had for dinner and when he reveals that she had a chicken then you have um charles's daughter that's up in the rafters fainting right and everything <laughs> yes <like that. laughs> with a thump to the floor yep yep, <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. um Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean throughout throughout the trial then I mean I had a couple of like one liners that were highlighted. At the beginning of the at the beginning of the trial when Charles says, Order in the court, silence please, now gentlemen and the gentlemen of the jury. Ladies too, whispered Jock, pointing towards uh, Mrs. Bogus. You can't say ladies when there's only one, snapped Charles. Well, you're not. Well, well, you've got to say something. You can't just leave her out entirely. And it's just like, it's just like, why are we having this discussion? Oh yes, because it's whimsical. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Um. Uh, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um. Were there any other portions of the book that you guys wanted to go over? Just a general impression that um, the relationship of Freddy and Jinx seems to be gaining some definition as we go on in mm. the series. That um, Jinx seems to be mm-hmm. a really good friend to Freddy, and Freddy is um, reciprocating that a little bit. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'm interested to see if that grows as the series goes on. Mhm. Yeah. Um and and it's a very interesting relationship and I mean it's a touch and go. Jinx is a very interesting character in that he's best buddies with you one moment, but if there's something that he doesn't like, he he out and says it. Uh-huh. Like his whole his whole thing with well, it's great that you want to be a detective, Freddy, but I mean whatever. <laughs> Basically for mm-hmm. most of the for most of the book, he's like that. Um, yeah. Well, he's a cat. He's a cat, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very much a cat. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if we're going to go into one-liners, there's a one-liner regarding cats earlier in the book that... Um, let's see. Oh. No, no, where'd my book go? There it <laughs> went. 
Uh, sorry, when it's when it's my finger controlling the chain or the turning of the pages, then suddenly the book can just you know disappear in the yeah. flash of everything. Um, mm-hmm. where was? No, not the armored train. Where is it? Stop going away. Here it is. Jinx sat down by the door and watched, trying hard to look superior and sarcastic. But it's hard to look superior and sarcastic all by yourself when nobody's paying any attention to you. So after a while, he gave up on it and went to sleep. <laughs> that was actually one of those, one of the lines that, like, when I reread it, I could hear McDonough's narr- narrative voice in it, like... For some reason, I could just hear his exact mm-hmm. intonation saying, it is hard to look superior and sarcastic all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Perfect. My one, my one contribution for uh, one-liners, again, is not necessarily a single line, but um, I just love the rat's little taunting song. Um, oh my goodness. All- the All chapter of the songs throughout this book. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. But the <sighs> chapter of the defeat of Simon's gang, uh, just uh, I don't know. It, none of it's like as it, there's no single line or verse that's necessarily that like like I pull out and put on a plaque or something. But just the spirit of the thing and just like the the rhythm, the meter of the thing is like so infantile and so taunting but like so well done and um mm-hmm. i, I want to just... see it rendered as a song in newsies that's what i want <laughs> i want the mm-hmm. newsboys singing yeah 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 so cats and pigs and men if you want to avoid a fuss say stay safely in house and pen and don't interfere with us mm-hmm. like it's just mm-hmm. so petulant and it, mm-hmm. i don't know something yeah. about it warms my heart also i do think that we did chant parts of this song to each other in my like childhood friend group when we were obsessed with this novel so there is also that that's wonderful (laughs) um i had a good one-liner on um on the page with egbert's disappearance when egbert's mom comes to freddy um and she's crying most animals don't like to cry because it makes their eyes red. But white rabbits have red eyes anyway, so crying doesn't make them look any different. And as they and as they are very sentimental and tender-hearted little animals and easily upset, they do cry a great deal. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read that line out loud to my wife. When I got to. Mm-hmm. That's a great line. Mm-hmm. And then, and then later on in the same chapter, like I alluded to before, when Freddy is really laying into Egbert, trying to get to the bottom of where Egbert <laughs> is with this little yes. white rabbit that's there, that it says, Freddy was a kind-hearted animal, but he had been so absorbed in asking questions in a thoroughly detective-like manner that he hadn't really noticed that he was frightening the rabbit so badly that the poor little creature couldn't give him any information, even if he had it to give. In this, Freddy was more like a real detective than he realized. Some detectives will ask a simple question like, what is your name? In so frightening a voice that the person he asks can't even remember whether he has a name or not. Yes. Great. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, while we're talking about Egbert, the one other like one-liner thing that I wanted to mention is actually just that name. Um, 
because it sounds like a silly little rabbit name, but Egbert was the name of like one of the greatest kings of Wessex before Alfred the Great. Like this is uh. this is a warrior king from Dark Ages England. Mm-hmm. Um, which I have to think that Walter R. Brooks just took the name because it was funny. Uh, but I also think he's probably smart enough to know that and know that he's poisoned at least some of us so that when we are later reading Winston Churchill's History of the English-Speaking Peoples, we will come upon this great warrior king and... Picture a rabbit. Picture not only a rabbit, but like the runtiest, tiny, <laughs> lost little pathetic rabbit. It's so good. So perfect. <laughs> so... So, so on the topic of names, yes. later on at the end of later on at the end of the trial, yes. when the rats are being you know taken out, then there's the exchange of Olfred with Charles, yeah. and that exchange is wonderful. The smallest of uh. the rats caused some amusement when he gave his name of Olf or as Olfred. There isn't any such name," said Charles. <laughs> "There is too," exclaimed the rat. "I've got it, haven't I?" How do you spell it? asked the rooster. O-L-F-R-E-D, said the rat. It ought to be spelled with an A, said Charles. Alfred, that's what it is. It, it isn't either. It's Olfred, insisted the rat. Nonsense, exclaimed the judge sharply. Don't you suppose I know? No, you don't. Just because you never heard of it don't mean anything. There's lots of names you never heard of. Is that so? exclaimed Charles angrily. <laughs> I bet you can't tell me one that I don't know. Yes, I can, said old Fred. There's Egwin and Ogbert and Wagmuth and Wigmund and Wagbert and... You're just making them up, said Charles. <laughs> of course I am, but their name's just the same. Right. Charles gave up. <laughs> it's like... It's- it's it's so out of nowhere, but it's also exactly the sort of argument that children have. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and and it keeps going for like two or three lines longer than you think it's going to. Yes. Right. You feel like it's just going to be this little short thing, and then it ends up being like a, like almost quarter of a page worth of this argument. Right. <laughs> and it's yeah. <sighs> Which also is conclusive proof that the Russo brothers. Uh, read this book before writing the script for Infinity War and mm. that that's obviously where the whole uh, that's a made up name all names are made up exchange comes from mm. <laughs> yes <laughs> obviously <laughs> good um, there was one more one liner and I'm going to cut it off at this one one this one more one okay um, so this is after Freddy has received the reward for the robbers and business is going just fine he's sitting at his desk and his money from the reward his $5,000 is out on the table beside him the money he had received as a reward was piled up in plain sight for no one said Freddy would dare to steal it now they know that if they tried it we'd catch them and have them clapped in jail within 24 hours it's like, I can just have my possessions just lying about. I am that good of a detective. I will find anyone that steals from me. It's just like... Yes. Right. It's just like, wow. Okay. All right. Um, okay. I don't know that I have much else. Do you guys? I don't nope. think so. So what book are we reading for next time, gentlemen? 
Next is uh, the story of Freginald, or Freddy and Freginald. Both titles are extant for that one. Um, Very good. So, all right. I don't think I've ever read that one, so that'll be exciting. Mm-hmm. Ooh, great! Mm. All right. Well, until next time, listeners. Uh, thank you for coming and listening, and um, have a good day. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>